Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new, joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. want to welcome in all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us today, and want to give a special shout out today to our Prescott Valley campus. Today is our one-year birthday of our Prescott Valley campus. So it was February 20th, I think, last year that we launched that campus. So we are so excited uh, that you guys are with us today, and happy birthday to all of you. I uh, want to show just a quick video for all of those of you who haven't been out to Prescott Valley, uh, just a tad bit of what goes on out there every week. I just want to give a big thank you to all of those volunteers. It takes dozens of volunteers each and every week to turn a uh, middle school into a place of worship. And so we are just so grateful and invite some of you out there in PV to join those volunteers. We could always use some more uh, to help make that happen. Uh, Just a couple of amazing things to celebrate. The campus is Averaged 355 people a week in this last year, which is amazing. And we've had 20 baptisms in the last year at Prescott Valley. So really, 
really excited for you guys, and truly the best is yet to come. So looking forward to what's going to happen in this next year that's going to be a huge boost to what we're doing in Prescott Valley, and thank you all for being a part of it. Uh, Today, we are going to dive into our series in the book of Romans. If you're a newcomer with us, we're working our way through the book of the Bible called Romans. We've made it all the way to chapter 9, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and join me there. Today, we're picking up where we left off last week, which is in verse 14. And again, I always encourage you, you can always go back and catch up with us. Last week, we entered this section that we're calling the hard news between chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's really kind of a prickly part of the book of Romans. And frankly, I wish I could just go from chapter 8 to chapter 12. I just want to skip this whole thing. But one of the reasons that we think it is important to preach through whole books of the Bible is because it requires us to talk about things that we wouldn't just pick to talk about. And so we want to look at all of God's Word, not just pick our favorite parts. So today we're wading into some deep waters, and it's way over my head. But I just want to remind us of what Paul's trying to address in this section, and the What he's trying to address is the fact that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, have by and large rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And Paul is heartbroken over this. I mean, the beginning of chapter 9, he weeps over this. So much so that he says, I'm willing to trade places with them. I will will cash in my salvation if that means that they'll be saved. I will go to hell in their place if that meant that they would get to spend eternity with Jesus. That's how much he cares for these lost people. The problem is nobody gets to go to heaven on somebody else's faith. But the fact that the vast majority of the Jewish people aren't in for the kingdom, it's it's a bit problematic because he's just given us all of these great promises of God in chapter 8, and then we get to chapter 9. It's like, wait, wait, wait. But he chose the Jewish people first. Salvation was first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. But they're not in. Like, they're not here. They're not part of the kingdom. And so, How can I believe that God's going to fulfill those promises for me if he didn't fill it for the people he made them to first? Like, that's the issue that he's trying to address. And the way that we answered that last week was to say that that Paul made the argument that just because people were part of the Jewish nation didn't make them a part of true Israel. Like, there's a difference between ethnic Jews and the children of Abraham. That ethnic Jews are are born into the family tree, but what makes you a child of Abraham is having the faith of Abraham. Being a child of Abraham isn't about genetics or DNA or genealogies. It's about having his faith. And in that way, Paul said last week, all Israel is saved. All that were picked in Israel, all of those who came by faith, they are in by faith. God has kept his promise brings us to the second dilemma that Paul anticipates with his teaching. And here's how it begins. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? So let's answer that out loud today. Church, is God unjust? Most of us would say no. However, my, my, my guess is that you've all thought it. You've all thought God was unjust at times. You've probably even said it. You've looked at God and you said, that's not fair. 
You've accused him of being unjust. And if you haven't, then let me help you. How many of you, how many of you all believe that God wants all people to be saved? How many of you all believe that? You should raise your hand. There's a verse for that one. Yes. God wants all people to be saved. That's what the scripture says. Okay. How many of you believe that God is all powerful and that he can do whatever he wants? Okay. How many of you believe all people will be saved? Jesus tells us that's not going to happen. He says, narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. Which then begins to create a bit of a dilemma here. Because if God wants everybody to be saved, God has the power to do whatever he wants, and at the end of the day, not everybody will be saved. How do we rectify that? How do we rectify that? If God wants everybody to be saved, and he can get whatever he wants, then why isn't everybody going to be saved? That sounds like a dilemma. That's the thrust of the question that Paul is asking us. God could have chosen for everybody to be saved, for all of the Jewish people to be in. God could have chosen that all of the nation of Israel be a part of the children of Abraham, but they're not. They're not. So is God unjust? Paul answers the question this way. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, what's interesting to me is he asked the question, is God unjust? He addresses the issue of justice, but he doesn't answer with justice. He brings up the issue of justice, but he answers the question by not talking about justice, but by talking about mercy and mercy and mercy. This isn't about justice. It says it's about mercy, which begs the question, how many of you want God to be just with you? You do not put your hands down because you don't want that. Obviously, we have some people who weren't here the first three months of this series. Because what we learned at the first three months of this series is you don't want God's justice. Because here's, here's what's true of us. Here's what Scripture says. We are all sinners. There is no one righteous, not even one. And because we are all sinners, the wages of sin is death. If God gave you what you deserved, what you would get is hell. That's what you deserve. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody, nobody wants justice. None of us want that. We don't want justice from God. And it's funny how, how many will call God unfair, but at the same time, pray that he's not fair with us. We blame God for being unfair, 
and then celebrate the fact that God's not fair because we don't want Him to be fair. You know what we want? Mercy. We want Him to be merciful with us. And so instead of giving everyone what they deserve, which is hell, Paul reminds us what God has said. I will have mercy on those whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on those on whom I have compassion. And it's not fair. It's grace. It's not fair. It's grace. And each and every one of us who are in Christ should celebrate the fact that it's not fair. You didn't earn it. We know it's grace because he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And it, it does not, therefore, depend upon human desire or effort. It's not about what you want and it's not about what you do. God did it on his own. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. You are not owed it. It's a gift. If you earned it or you were owed it, then it wouldn't be grace. None of us earned it. And none of us are owed it. It's a gift. God is free give his mercy to anyone he wishes. But he doesn't have to give it to anyone at all. Because he's God. And who are we to tell God what he's required to do? God can do whatever he wants. He can give mercy. Or, as we'll see in this next text, God can choose to not give mercy. And instead, give people what they want instead. Here's what he says. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul says, just as God has the right to give mercy to whomever he wishes, God has the right to harden the hearts of people who desire to have hard hearts. And again, we've already seen this back in Romans chapter 1 where it says that there were some people who were, who were hell-bent on sinning against God. And the text says that God gave them over to a depraved mind. Remember that? God gave them over. And the picture I gave you in your head was, imagine a big a tug of war, right? You got... God on one side of the rope and he's pulling people toward him and toward holiness and you got people on the other side of the rope who are pulling against God trying to get away trying to pull God away from holiness and you got this tug of war and God at any point could just go and everybody flies over but when people are desiring to fight against God and pull against God and don't want to go with God at some point, God has the right to say, if you want to walk in your sin, if you want to follow after your sin, then have at it. And he lets go of the rope. And they all go tumbling down. That's exactly 
what happened with Pharaoh. If you remember the story, you may remember that it does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus during the ten plagues. But what you may not understand is that it said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart after the sixth plague. After the first five plagues, the text says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God. Over and over, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Here's the important truth we need to know. Nowhere in Scripture is God ever said to harden hearts of anyone who has not first hardened their own. Again, as we go back to chapter 1, what I said was the worst thing that you can do, the worst thing that you could experience is God giving you over to your own desires. Is God letting go of the rope. You never want God to just let you have your way or to let you have your will because your will will always lead you away from God, not to God. God gave Pharaoh what he wanted. God did not override Pharaoh's will by hardening his heart. Instead, God let Pharaoh have his will in hardening his heart. He continues, what may be the most difficult section in all of Romans 9, he says this, And one of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. And whatever God wants, God gets. So if God gives mercy to some and he hardens others, then how is it that God's going to blame us for whether or not we have a hard heart or experience mercy? For who's able to resist his will? Paul anticipates if God has mercy on whom he wants to, hardens whom he wants to, if he has the ability to turn our hearts toward him, but then he doesn't do it, then how can he punish people who don't turn to him? And in this moment, we are introduced to a tension that has gone unresolved for hundreds of years. And it is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, specifically as it relates to salvation. It begs the question, when somebody rejects Jesus, is it because God predestined them to reject Jesus? Or is it because they chose in themselves to reject Jesus? Like Who's ultimately responsible? And here's what I know. There are some of you here at Quad City today, and you have been waiting for this moment in this text. Like when you knew we were doing Romans back in the summer, you got excited for when we're going to get to this. Because you know this text, and you know the issues that it raises, and you've been waiting for me to get to this text and to argue for one of these against the other of these. And I really hate to disappoint you, but it's not going to happen. I'm not going to argue one of these over and above the other one. What I'm going to argue against 
is elevating one of these above the other. Because biblically, they are both absolute. Let me show you what I mean. You cannot deny that all over Scripture, it talks about the sovereignty of God. Let me show you just a few examples. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. You didn't choose it. He chose you before you were even born to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption, predetermined to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Not your pleasure, not your will. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, his sovereignty. What he wants, he gets. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? There's his sovereignty. God picked. When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel comes to the Gentiles, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for for eternal life believed. In other words, there were some in the crowd who heard it, but evidently were not appointed to eternal life. So they didn't believe. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Jesus himself said, as he was talking to the twelve, I'm not referring to all of you, talking to the 12. I know those I have chosen. In other words, there was one in the midst who was not chosen. Like It's all over Scripture. We can't deny that God chooses and determines and that that God is sovereign over this. We can't ignore that. The Scriptures speak to it over and over and over again. However, there are just as many scriptures that speak to man's responsibility as it relates to salvation. Let me give you some of those. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Paul says, I sent the gospel to you, and you have a responsibility. You have to receive it. You have to take your stand on it, and you'll be saved by it if you hold firmly. And if you don't hold firmly, then you believed in vain. It was pointless. Peter replied on the day of Pentecost, he preaches the gospel, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He didn't stand up on Pentecost and say, Here's the gospel. Now all of you who are in will be in. Good for you. He says, no, no, no. You have to respond. Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you. Paul had in his mind that everybody who heard the gospel had a chance to respond to the gospel. The very next verse. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. He's begging people, save yourselves. From this corrupt generation. You have a part to play in this. Jesus said it. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
In other words, you don't just get to cash in your chips. You don't just get to quit halfway through. You don't get to sit down and do nothing. No, no, no. You got to keep to the end. Stand firm till the end. Then you'll be saved. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. This is Paul talking about sanctification in his own life. So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul doesn't have this expectation that because he got chosen that he just gets to sit back and do whatever he wants. He says, no, I sanctify myself every single day so that after I stand up and I proclaim the gospel so that people can be saved, I don't get to the end of my life and be disqualified for the very gospel I shared with others. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's your responsibility. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found fallen short of it. This isn't. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to the church. For, we've all, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because they did not share in the faith of those who obeyed. You have a responsibility. Watch, he's talking to Timothy, young pastor. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The counter to that would be, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your doctrine. Don't worry about perseverance. And if you don't, you will not save both yourself and your hearers. Like, we can't get away from the man's responsibility piece. It is all over Scripture. And sometimes you see the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility stuck in the same text. Therefore, my... Dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility. You continue to work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Well, is it God working or me working? Yeah. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. It's not a surprise to him. And, and at the same time, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. God chooses. He knows who are his. And those who are his turn away from wickedness. It's not an either or. It's a both and. God's sovereignty over salvation is true. And man's responsibility in salvation is true. They're both biblical mandates. They're both truths. Now, there are some who want to take the sovereignty of God to the extreme and to elevate it to a place that it all but removes any responsibility for man. And they will argue 
that everyone is either chosen to be in or chosen to be damned before they are even born. And it doesn't matter what they think or what they feel or what they say or what they do. None of that has any impact on them. This group camps out on the sovereignty of God in election side. And they would say, if someone is chosen to be in, they will be in, no matter what. And they couldn't choose to be out, even if they wanted to get out. And if they're chosen by God, determined to not be in, then they can't ever get in, even if they want to be in. Which taken to its logical conclusion, taken to the extreme, would, would, would tell us that there really isn't a need to pray for people. Because they're either in or they're out already. There isn't a need to share our faith because those who were chosen are going to be in and those who aren't, aren't. There's no need to go into all the world and make disciples. There's no need to preach or practice the tenets of the faith because at the end of the day, all the people who were destined to be in will be in and all of those who were rejected will be rejected and all we're doing is waiting around to the end to figure out which list our name is on. That's one extreme. The other extreme elevates man's responsibility. The other extreme would say that ultimately it's man's actions or inactions that determines whether they are in or out. In fact, they elevate man's responsibility so much that the extreme position would say that even God doesn't ultimately know who's going to make the cut because he's waiting to see if you make it to the finish line. Or worse yet, you're in one day, you're out the next day, depending on how bad you sinned or if you were able to ask for forgiveness before you died. Which means on that extreme, there is no such thing as assurance and salvation. You got to wait until the very end and cross your fingers that you make it in time. So that's the other extreme. And there are some who want to try to dance in the middle, like, There are some who want to put all of the weight. It's all God. And nothing for us. There are others who would say, no, no, no. It's all man. And God's just waiting to see what we do. And there are some who want to strike a balance and they'd say, well, it's some God. I mean, it is God who's got to call us to him. So there is some God peace in it. But the ultimate is, is it's, it's on us. There are others who would say, well, sure, sure, sure. There are some piece that man plays and there's things that we got to do and there's a response and you got to pray the prayer, raise the hand. There's something, but ultimately they're going to do it all because God's already determined it all. So it's all God. And we just keep going back and forth, back and forth on these extremes. And what I'm asking you to do is to consider the fact that maybe both of them are absolutely true at the same time. That God is sovereign and we are responsible. This is what scripture teaches. That both of them are equally true at the exact same time. And I think what happens for many of us is that we try to separate these things We try to separate them. In fact, 
The scripture never separates them. In fact, right in our text, Romans 9 is all about the sovereignty of God. We're going to flip the page to Romans 10, and it's going to be all about the responsibility of man. Come back next week, that's the whole thing. It's all about God, man's responsibility. They're right here together. And as much as we would like to separate these things, we can't. God is sovereign. We are responsible. And moving too far in either direction I believe is us trying to solve a mystery inside of time that can only be solved outside of time. We are trying to solve a mystery with finite minds that can only be understood by an infinite mind. And I think Paul seems to agree. Because when he brings up this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, he asks the question, then why does God blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But he never answers this question. He listens to it because that would be our question. Why does God blame us? Why does God blame people? How can God hold people responsible if he's going to do the whole thing? But Paul doesn't answer this question. Instead of answering this question, he actually gives a rebuke to those who think God owes them an explanation. But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? In other words, Paul says, who are you to question God? Can the creation question the creator? Do do you really think God owes you an explanation for how he operates? He can do whatever he wants with his creation. What if? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he has called? not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if God did that? What if God chose to make some people for one purpose, some people for another purpose? What if God did that? Who are we to correct him? Who are we to tell God how to be God? Who are we to tell God that he owes all Israel the chance or or the promise to get in, barring no responsibility of their own? Who are we to say that? What if God, instead of just picking one nation and all of those people get in, what if God chooses to take Israel, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Doesn't he have the right to do that if he wants? Because he's God? Again, the fact that we don't really like the explanation doesn't make it not true. This is essentially, I read this and I hear my mother. Likely this is something you've said to your kids or your parents said to you. Essentially, this is God saying to his creation, I brought you into this world and I will take you out. But with God, it's true. He has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. 
Here, here's my never-to-be-humble opinion. What's the action step that we should leave here with? Here it is. I want us to believe like God is sovereign over everything, and I want us to behave like we are responsible for it all. In other words, I want us to trust in the sovereignty of God as if it all depends upon Him. And I want us to fulfill the Great Commission with passion and zeal like it all depends upon us. That's what I see in Paul. Paul, who wrote about the sovereignty of God a lot. What did Paul do? How did he live? He got on boats. He risked his life. He shared the gospel all over the world as if everyone was invited in. Never once do we, even for a second, see Paul sit back and say, well, God's got this. Those who are in are in, and those who are out are out, and I'm just tired, and so I'm going to Cabo. Like, he doesn't do that. No, he raises money. He gathers disciples. He prays for the Spirit to open up hearts. He works harder than anyone to make sure everyone gets a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus. He never sits back and says, God's got it. Those who are in are in. Those who are out are out. No, no, no. He preaches the sovereignty of God and he goes to all the world. Even in this section, we hear his heart. Look at chapter 10. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. How then? Paul's talking about these lost people. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Right before he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be, will be saved which is a great promise. But then immediately Paul goes, but how can they call if they don't believe? And how can they believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless somebody goes? Again, he this is not a man who's sitting back saying, well, God's going to save who he's going to save and he'll damn who he's going to damn and we'll all just wait to see how it shakes out in the end. It's not what he does. He understands the sovereignty of God and he understands the responsibility of man. We have a responsibility to both respond to the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. There's one preacher I heard said it. He says, it turns out the more I share the gospel, the more elect people I find around me. Think about that for a second. The more I share the gospel, the more elect people I just keep finding around me. Isn't that funny? So, let's sleep like it all depends upon God. And let's work as if it all depends upon us. And stop trying to make God answer for attention that we don't like. We pray. Father, we are grateful that you have not left us alone, that you have chosen and you have called, that we have heard the gospel and been given a chance to respond. Like none of us in this place today, are, none of us are with an excuse. We, we all have heard the gospel and we have a chance to respond to the gospel. So God, draw those people to yourself.
And those of us who have responded, may we take our responsibility seriously to behave as if we have a part to play in the redemption of man because you've called us to go make disciples of all nations. May we hold the tension tightly today between your sovereignty and our responsibility trust for you to work out your grace in the middle. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.